0: Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 291, recorded July 6, 2022, and I'm Brian Hawkins. Hey, I'm Michael Kennedy. Uh, good to see you, Michael. It's been a while. Yeah, good to see you, Brian,
1: as well. Fun, as always. Like, yeah. There's just a never-ending flow of fun stuff to talk about. I know we got good stuff to share today, as always. Yes, we do. Why don't you kick us off? Licensing, something everybody's super psyched about. But I think you'll find this project. Interesting. And I don't know how you'll receive it, but I was like, wait a minute, what? This is odd. Hmm. So this project comes to us from Tom Nyhoff. And he sent this in and said, you know, it occurred to me that we have licenses for things like PyTest. So I could go search for PyTest. And over on GitHub, or my programming lens, over on GitHub, I could check this out. And what is the license? Well, it looks like the license is MIT. So if I want to use PyTest, I'm Buying into the MIT license, right? Yeah, kinda. Maybe sometimes. Only if you <laughs> so ship let's with and it. Just go put Pydust. That's true. But you know, there are libraries like Request or whatever that you might, you know, ship, right? So yeah. if, I'll just put Pydust in here to see what we get. So this project is called Python Project Insight, and it only has about five thousand three hundred packages parsed in so far. But the idea is, you can say load the dependencies, and it'll show you the licenses. So, for example. For PyTest, we have the MIT license, but PyTest depends upon packaging and import lib metadata and Colorama and PyParsing and adders and typing extensions. Mm -hmm. Well, packaging has the Apache license. Colorama has the BSD license. uh, Adders has MIT license. So does PyTest. And then the Python Software Foundation has typing extensions. So I don't know. What do you think of that? It is interesting. And I don't know what to do with it. (laughs) I, I don't either. I'm like, wait a minute. I have to kind of sort of consider the transitive closure of the dependencies for their licenses. And I had never really I, I'm sure people are there, well, of course, Michael, of course that's how it works. But for me, I like I hadn't really thought about it. I look at the project or the library and it has this license. Like another one could be uh, you know, that you would build on before, uh, more likely would be like requests. So if we load the dependencies for requests, you have Apache, BSC, MIT, and Mozilla split across that one project. So yeah, I just think this is this is pretty wild. Um, I'm pointing out that TensorFlow was one of the more uh, wild ones. So if you load up TensorFlow, there's just <laughs> lots
0: of different licenses here. Like sample the GitHub licensing options, basically. So if I was if I was shipping a commercial project, a commercial product with Python that used a whole bunch of dependencies, I do know that these this transitive closure stuff, the stuff that I'm actually shipping with, I really am supposed to. Uh, list those and have those licenses listed in somewhere. Right. In a somewhere. sense, because you are shipping the, the yeah. dependencies of a thing in order for that thing to work. Right. Yeah. So, um, so you're at least saying I'm using this, it's here and here's the license for it. I think that's the case. I'm not a lawyer, of course. Um, but the, Neither the am I. there's a whole bunch of these tools like PyTest, for instance, that we use that we don't ship. Those are, those are a different story. Um, and that's a, it's kind of a different license thing. Uh but I, I don't know about yeah. the packages. Are these like, like the packages that these are shipping, they're, 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 they're there, they're not really being sold, but do you, do you have to list the licenses of the things that you're depending on? I don't know. No. I don't know either. I, I yeah. think maybe in some times it, it doesn't matter,
1: but if mm-hmm. it was GPL rather than LGPL, right? For example, that might be something you care about You know, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I would love to hear people who really understand this super well, if they could like maybe tweet at us or comment on the YouTube stream or something like that about exactly what that means. But I I do think it's pretty interesting uh, information. Like mostly this shows the licenses, but it also shows the total size of installing the project and what libraries it depends upon. So you can kind of like poke around with that as well.
0: That is, that's actually pretty useful and interesting information as well that you don't really think about is how big. How big of a download do I get if I put all these things, pull all these things together? So, yeah,
1: interesting. Yeah, and you can pile them up. So you can say, I'm using TensorFlow, I'm using um, SKLearn, um, yeah. I'm using Request, right? Then you can say, like, okay, for those three, tell me about what the story is. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it gets a little more interesting still. Hmm. I guess maybe that's not, not quite right. But. That just comes with uh, SciPy. But anyway, yeah, something like that, right? Yeah. Yeah, neat. So anyway, thanks, Tom, for sending that in and
0: sharing with us. Well, I think I'll switch gears a little bit and talk about data classes. So I actually really like data classes. Have you used data classes much, Mike, Michael? Some, they definitely have some very neat properties,
1: Uh, I find myself kind of when I'm on the edge of using a data class, I'm like "Mm, maybe Pydantic, but frozen is a cool option. You can add slots. Slots makes so many things awesome in terms of uh, lower memory usage, faster attribute access, all kinds of things. And if it's just slots equal true on the class definition, that's kind of nice.
0: Yeah, it is. Um, So uh, Trey Hunter is a a Python trainer, and he he came up with this cool tool on his Python morsels site called the undata class. And it's actually also a library that he released a little tool that's undata class. And he, the, the idea is he was thinking like, what would be the equivalent of a data class? If you didn't write a data class, if you, if you if you wanted to have the same sort of functionality, what would you do in a normal class? So he's got this cool tool down. And the example shows, yeah, it shows here uh, slots, uh, just a, a point with X, Y, Z, all floats, and also shows frozen sets and slots, but I'm gonna turn those off. Um, and you just change the class and it changes the output and it like like prints out what an equivalent class would be if you didn't uh, if you didn't use uh, data classes. Um, so actually I'm not and I, and I tried to make sure I understood all of this. So one of the things that it's kind of neat that it just it's part of a learning tool that he's got that it shows you you know what you get with data classes but there's not a lot of description around like what all this means. So this is sort of a fun thing to help you look up stuff, I guess. So right off the bat, if we just have X, Y, and Z, you have an, a dunder, init that takes X, Y, and z as input values and assigns them. And it comes with a nice wrapper class and then an EQ, a dunder EQ, which is uh, to, for equality. Um, and one of the things I knew I wanted to look up was um, to make sure I understood is uh, what it does is it says if, if, if the other thing, if I'm going to be getting compared with something else, if that other thing is also my same type in this point point, in this case point, uh, then, then you can do the, the equality comparison, otherwise the raise a not implemented. And that's just kind of a convention because Python. Um, and then what happens is uh, Python will try to call EQ on the other thing of like reverse the order and stuff, because, kind of how python works but it's one of those hidden sort of things is you need to kind of know that if if you if you don't know what to do in an eq class or an eq function um ray is not implemented and then python goes from there um and then yeah. uh resetting though uh if you if you give it uh, slots all the slots does is add slots to it um and that's it which is kind of cool and what slots does yeah yeah and what Slots does is it makes it so that you can't add later. So if you can't add a w uh, attribute later to your point. Um, but then if you yeah. do frozen, it does a whole bunch of stuff. well, uh, oh, you get a whole bunch more Dunder methods. But mostly, these are just uh, raising, uh, raising exceptions so that you know if you try to change it, it raises an exception. So anyway, this is kind of cool. Yeah, do you see the uh, Dunder init, the constructor
1: implementation when you add frozen? It doesn't say it self.x. Does it's a it calls set adder like behind the scenes, and then it yeah. implements set adder and del adder and raises exceptions if you try to mess with it. Pretty wild. That's cool.
0: Um, the uh, we're also going to link to uh, a couple um a couple articles that uh, that Trey wrote about. He wrote about this about how he wrote this, and one of the things I real I'm bringing this up partly because I like data classes, and it's kind of cool for people to learn what they are. But in his developing this, he says he came up with uh, uh, having a great use case for m- the match case, new match case blocks in Python, um, using Sentinel objects, which I'm not sure what he's talking about there. So I'll have to take that look at that. Uh, using TextWrap DDent, which I love. And it's nice to see somebody else using that. Um, slice and then an AST. So he's using AST in here. So it's kind of a cool, fun example of using that. So anyway.
1: Cool yeah, a lot of cool stuff in action there. Go back to the first one, the first tab you got there.
0: Yeah. One of the
1: things I appreciate from this example is you just say class point, X colon float, Y colon float, Z colon float, Yeah, put the data class attribute on it. Look how much it's doing for you, right? Like it's not just the the typed values, but it's um, protecting the read-write ability, making it read-only. It's getting a repr definition. It's getting a hash ability, equality, not equality effectively by... All right. There's a lot of cool things it's adding for you there. Yeah. And he's, ex- he's, so you can sug- appreciate the data class.
0: He's suggesting uh, doing other stuff like, uh, um, you using keyword only and field deal- fields, different fields to see if you can change how it works. But yeah, I'll have to play with this some more. Um, and a reminder mm-hmm. to everybody that has is, um, is like data classes are almost enough, but you need more. We'll also look at adders because adders is a kind of a superset of data classes. Right.
1: Yeah. Fantastic. Looks great. C- Cool. All right, Brian. The next one I got here.
0: This okay. one's for you.
1: Okay. All right. All right. Uh, so let's go back. We'll take a a two two step process to approach this. Did you ever use links, Lynx? L Y N X. Yeah, like a long, long time ago. I remember SSH. I know. I think I telneted into the the mainframes back at the university, and I'd run Lynx. This predated the graphical web. I mean, it's yep. insane, right? So, but it's a browser that is pure text in the terminal. Today we have all these fancy browsers, but one of the things you had a lot of was like keyboard shortcuts and other types of things you could do, right? Yeah. Well, now that it's thirty years later, what if we could go back to a time a little bit like that? So, I want to introduce you to the cute browser, Q U T E browser. Okay. Okay. So, what is this? The cute browser uh, is also like kind of in need of a homepage <laughs> refresh. But it's a keyboard-focused browser with a minimal GUI, and what's interesting is it's built with Python. Okay, so it's a full web browser built with Python, and it's kind of like a like a Vimper or one of these other ones that lets you do Vim-like control and behavior of it. A little bit like a little bit like Links, but it's actual actually Chrome more or less, at least the Chrome runtime. So this one uh, was sent in. I want to make sure I give him credit for. a shout out this was sent in to us by martin boris and it's it's pretty neat so it's a browser let me switch up my screen share just for you for a sec um stop and then i'm gonna add the cute browser You ready where is it there all right so look at this bad boy so this is the browser and how do i go to places well i can click on things like here's a link i can click on but if i want to go somewhere i press o and it pulls up a place I can open. Look at this. I got my history. Oh, that's pretty I cool. I want to go to like, uh, I want to go to Talk Python. Um, how do I? If I want to do a command, I hit colon, and here's all my commands. I've like my tab, give focus, and control, and so on. Um, over here, I just type F. Uh, so if I want to, if I want to navigate, for example, I'm here on the Talk Python page. What if I want to go to courses? I type F, and then everything. See how everything gets a a letter oh, above that's it? That's pretty great. So yeah. L, D, D, G. If I want to go to D, I just press D and then we're off on the Talk By Line training site and so on. So I could open, um, or I could say open, and then I could search for PyTest and then will pull up my tests and so on. And I can do a new tab. i got to remember how to do that. Um, yeah, we're going to say tab clone. <laughs> and I come over here. I know there's a bunch of good commands that I'm not following, like very much like if I was actually using Vim. <laughs> yeah, If I could search for PyTest book, I could come over here, right? like that, and then I can hit, um, is it Control or Windows uh, Control? Ooh, that's a good book. Yeah, I heard that's a good book. So I can like cycle through my tabs, see how minimal my tabs are and stuff right there. Oh, it's yeah. on the bottom, it's got all these little commands. So anyway, and I can type colon Q, boom, we're out. Nice. What do you think of this? Yeah, what um, do you think of that?
0: I actually love the Qt browser. I haven't used it much, um, but I, de- I yeah. definitely know about it because the um, Florian Bruin, who started Cute browser, He's um he's a Pytest core contributor um and also one of the technical reviewers for the Pytest book. So really cool guy. But I I love the idea of being nice. able to just use a browser with a keyboard and not have to touch the mouse at all. That's like that's that's next level. It's pretty that's, neat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's see. Uh, out in the audience, Kim Van Hey, Kim says
1: I just res- resign myself to using a mouse more than I want to. Cute browser may be the way to go. Thanks for the tip. Awesome. Yeah. And Alvaro says, "Are those VS Code shortcuts? I suppose only if you have the Vim bindings set in VS Code. But then, I sort of yes. <laughs> Which
0: well, really of course you do. <laughs> Why wouldn't you? Um, <laughs> Are you a monster? You know. get, can you do? Can you even do Emacs bindings? And um... I don't know. I mean, you could do
1: non Vim bindings. Yeah, right. But then, then people would look down on you, right, Brian?
0: But um, I, I don't do Vim stuff in mine. I know that you probably do though." Yeah, I, I use Vim everywhere, especially in VS Code. So, nice. Uh nice. but but it is I think people should check it out. It's kind of a cool project. And also it 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 helped push forward some of the some some pytest uh things. We got some new features because of this. It's cool.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um I I installed it with Homebrew. So that was easy to install. You can install it with apt on Linux. Uh, I'm not sure about Windows, but they've got a quick start guide so you can follow along to see like, you know, what what you might want to do like it's it's not super obvious
0: no that what cheat shortcuts sheet do is uh I have a eye chart e-binding <laughs> it's a bit of an eye chart <laughs> i suspect you can zoom it <laughs> there
1: you go it's still okay. small <laughs> it's still small but um uh, yeah i do like the the navigation pressing like f and then just a letter to navigate instead of using your mouse to follow the links that's pretty cool
0: do you remember those like uh, those templates that people used to have like back in the day for uh, like in like office tools where they would uh, overlay? Right, you would
1: put them. Oh, it was actually like an overlay on your keyboard.
0: Yeah, it would go over the like the function keys to to so that you could remember which functions did what during what application. And if you switched to Word, you put a different or probably WordPerfect at the time, you put a different template over it, and yeah, yeah.
1: I'm going to use Lotus One Two Three. Give me the function key overlay.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, no, I'm just yeah, showing, it's like that. It is showing how old I am. <sighs> so let's talk I'm about sure something they still, new. Still teach that in college? Yeah, uh, no, they don't. <laughs> Although in college, I what? had to, I had to teach. I was a, um, a TA for uh, like a computers one on one class but during grad school, and links was one of the things we had to teach. And I was like, nobody's going to really? use this. Yeah, oh, but it was part of the curriculum. Incredible. Yeah. So that's awesome. Anyway, so let's uh, switch to something new like async. So, um, oh, yeah, uh, uh, I think we've talked about court probably several times. Uh, and court is a it's like flask, but it's async. Um, it actually is the is the uh does the entire it supports the flask API or I think, um, and sort of looks the same, but it's async instead.
1: But there's a problem super close. You can basically everywhere you have the word flask, if you replace it with the word court, it more or less works. So, like lower clay, like import lowercase f flask you import lowercase court if you create an object capital f flask
0: you use capital court and then it lets you do async basically cool um but there's an ecosystem around both of them now so there are extensions to flask some of them work on court there's extensions to court i don't know if any of those work on flask but the people in behind both of them kind of are supportive of the whole thing and so court is actually now part of the pallets project was is the big news um and uh pallets is the the project that includes uh flask and a whole bunch of other stuff um uh but it because of this it will help maybe the maintainers kind of work together a little bit better and smoother um to to iron this out so the big big difference of course is that flask has uh, a whiskey um server behind it server right word um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh and Court is ASCII. So asynchronous. But the the it's so this is cool. Well, why do we care a little bit? Is that it used to be that really you had to do async. If you wanted async, you had to do Court. But now Flask as a Flask 2.0, you do have some uh some async capabilities, but it's still using a single threaded server. So there's there are some limitations. So uh kind of Interesting to read about this. There is a, a, async and await page on the flask website that talks about really what the trade-offs are, what the performance and the background tasks and how to do that uh, within, um, without switching shifting to court, but then also talks about at some point you might want to just switch to court instead. Um, the, along this line uh, is uh, I was thinking about, about this partly while I was looking at this other article, uh, from Steve Pate that called, uh, should you use async on your next Python web application? Which I was, oh, I wanted to bring this up because I was curious about what your take on it was. Well, the first part is that it's a really nice history. It talks about the history of web server interfaces with Python, with, uh, with the timelines and and Whiskey and ASCII, um, and and then how async IO came in into play and how uh, uvicorn is popular in Unicorn. How do, G, I don't know how to say that. Um, I'm pretty sure it's G Unicorn because it's unicorn. short for Green Unicorn. Okay. So the last green bit unicorn. should still be pronounced Unicorn. So I'm going to go with G. Okay. And then there's Hypercorn, which is the asynchronous uh, web server that's similar. Uh, anyway, so it talks about this, but then at the end, the conclusion, it talks about all the different frameworks. In The, conc- the conclusion is... Uh, most people don't need async on their web server, and um, and I was curious how, what your what your reaction to this conclusion is. I have some thoughts, but let me pull up
1: some first. Okay, so here's my thought: it depends. It depends on how far you need to push it towards the edge. I was surprised how far you can get without async in terms of concurrency. Okay, so I recently did a an in person class. Imagine that um, over over zoom, but you know, live in person, I actually have some more to say about that. It's kind of related, but anyway, I just did a, a course with some folks who are doing fast API and they said, look, this async stuff that we're doing, like adds some complexity to the way that we got to write code. We're not sure whether or not there's a trade-off. So what we did is we actually ended up writing a fast API app with using the, the sync and the async version of SQL alchemy, and then using a sync and an async version of fast API endpoints. Okay. Okay. With the database that we had as the back end, and the database was not the limiting factor because it was at like 10% CPU while this was happening. It was just chilling. Yeah. But with a, a real database, Postgres as the back end, what we found was we could do if I can remember this right. Oh boy. I I'll give you I can certainly give you the 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 relative bit. So with the synchronous version, we got way more scalability than we thought. So it was like. 75% performance of the async version. So okay. that seems way higher because the database, ha- like most of the things we were doing is just waiting on the database. But because we are running in G Unicorn with UVicorn workers, I well, really just in G Unicorn with threads, you know, Python doesn't do threading well, except when it's listening on a network socket or yeah. doing a few other things that will release the gill. And guess what? When you're talking to database, you're listening to a network socket. So there's all these points that naturally free up threading. Interesting. And actually got us like 75% of the way there, but we still got 25 to 30% more performance out of the async version. And it was like, I think it was five worker processes running on my eight core machine, talking to Postgres. And we were getting some like, um, you know, like 2000 requests per second versus 1500 a second, or maybe it was 1000, and 1500, something like that. It was a lot of requests per second, um, but we did get more performance out of the async version. So my depends is, like, that last 25, are you, like, that close to your performance? I would say 95% of the web apps are not maxed, right? They're not maxed out with, like, multiple servers trying to deal with it, all right? Yeah. Nine of, 95% of servers are are doing important work, but they probably still have a lot of capacity left. So it's like, it depends. Are Like, are, do you need that last 25% or does it not really matter?
0: Yeah, yeah, and also, uh, like... That's, those are my thoughts. Uh, w- what's the load like on your typical... I mean, what what are your levels anyway? Right. So, um, if you if you already have an like for instance, if you already have an application running, um, you can measure it and see see what your load is looking like and how many people you have. And then if you if you think, oh, I might I might increase my what if we double? Um, Then you can kind of guess what your load's going to look like if you double and stuff. So interesting. Uh, Yeah, yeah.
1: And I recommend people check out this Locust thing because it's so easy to say. A typical user clicks on the page between five and fifteen seconds. They might go log in some of the time. They might go hit yeah. the home page. They might hit the about. And then you can say, I would like to see how many users I can take. And if if you're 10X what you need, you know, it doesn't matter whether you use async or not. But there is a performance benefit. It's just mm-hmm. not as massive as it might sound.
0: The the other bit that I want to like point out is the the one one statement that like it depends on what you're using also. Like I can't can't find the the bit here but it he was talking about how um one application he had he was thinking about oh i might i might do uh, async except for he was using a payment gateway that didn't have an async version so he had to use a synchronous for that and since it's synchronous somewhere you kind of have is this true if it's synchronous somewhere you have to be synchronous everywhere or is that not really true you know
1: if sorry say that if it's sync async it's async everywhere or sync it's sync everywhere
0: uh, either one is either one of those true if i like if i have a if no. i've got an application and <laughs> and i do need to hit a gateway that's synchronous do i need to if i isolate it i I guess i can probably do asynchronous and hide it that way but yeah i mean you're, you just don't get as good a scalability yeah
1: there and you kind of block up the processing if you do the sync for the async one um you can do like a wrapper where you say like, we're going to do some async work, but I'm just going to call that and block because all the other stuff above it doesn't want to deal with being async. Yeah. So it's it's easier to go from sync to async to, to like have part of it be async. The other way around is a little more uh, tricky. It can mess it up a bit.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah. Nice. Interesting
1: conversation. Yep. Thanks a lot. Absolutely. It is. sure is. Is that it? Is that all of our items? Are we? I, I think is that all of our items? I, think I guess so. so. Yeah, yeah. What You got any extras for us? I don't. No. Okay. Well, I have some. Let me, okay. uh, let me pull them up here. Locust, look, let me tell you about it now. It's great. All right. No, I have three things I want to tell people about. Number one is I did a talk at Python Web Conference, the HTMX and Flask one that I've done in some other places, but that was a, a fun talk, like a 45-minute Flask plus HTMX goodness there. And so that video, along with all the other um, Python Web Conf 2022 talks are now on YouTube. So people can check that out. Cool. Did you know that, um, the Python web conference had five days and I think it was like four or five tracks all day. So there are a ton of videos. There's like 150 <laughs> videos or something on there. I mean, look at this scroll bar here. It's probably going to like, um, page as I get to the bottom too. Yep. <laughs> you know, look at that. So there was a lot of talks that people can come check out, uh, if they're interested in that. That's One of them cool. being HTMX that I did.
0: Yeah, I want to. Yep. I want to watch your talk. You've given that a couple times, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, so. yeah, I've
1: gave it a couple times. Basically, the way it worked is like when I was working on that course and really like playing with those ideas, I submitted to a bunch of conferences, and those conferences were either a year out or they were like a, a month out or something. Right? So oh, that's yeah. how it that ended up so spread out. But. The other one is I mentioned the the browser that was fun, but how about the browserosaurus?
0: Okay, the, <laughs> a Mac
1: OS only tool, but there's probably something like it for the others. So here's the thing: suppose I'm in um typora which is a markdown editor or i'm in a powerpoint and it's got a link and i click it by default it opens in the default browser but depending on what you're doing you might want it to be like oh sometimes i wanted it to open in vivaldi but other times i wanted it to open in like say the cute browser or orion or some odd thing like that right so the idea with this thing is that you click a link and when it opens up instead of opening in the default browser the browser asaurus source is the default. And then you have um keyboard shortcuts like F for Firefox, E for Edge, S for Safari, and you say, "Well, which one do you want to open in right now?" And it basically just delegates to the different browsers you register it with. So you can hit T for Tor or F for Firefox when you click a link. That's mm, kind of cool, right?
0: That is pretty cool. Yeah.
1: yeah. I'd not I haven't been convinced that I would use that or or not, <laughs> no. but um I do, do appreciate it. And I I feel like maybe someone sent that in and if they did, I really appreciate it, but uh, yeah, I don't have any notes of who sent it in. So Anyway, that's pretty cool. If you if you find yourself, you know, copy link, going to different browsers a lot, and you're on Mac, I know that's like a a small, a, a rapidly decreasing Venn diagram. But if you're in that space, this might be a cool option for you.
0: Yeah. Um. speaking what is it written of, with anyway? TypeScript uh, mostly. Okay. So speaking of browsers, I just found this because I was like, "Is links dead? Can I use something like links now?" And there's there's a there's a, a browser called Broush, which is a text based browser. <laughs> so that's still a thing. Cool. I try this out oh my
1: gosh (laughs) I love it that it kind of has text but it it like 8-bit pixelated
0: yeah it takes the images pictures but it kind of
1: 8-bit it takes the images and makes them look like what you would get yeah so I'll have to give this a try yeah and you run it in docker of course you do all right (laughs) pretty cool (laughs) um all right oh let's yeah go ahead one more before we get to our joke The other one is I talked about um, doing a live class. So I actually have an announcement for a live class that I'm doing. So Obviously, people know I have a bunch of online courses. And of course, I'm going to keep I'm already working on the next one of those. And we got a bunch coming there. But I want to try some experiments, some something where people can um, attend a class in person with other people. Right, if they um, you know, sort of help each other along, and I've tried this before, this cohort thing, but I think I've got a, a better platform, a better way to do it. So over at um, this link, I'm going to put in the show notes. I'm doing a fast API and MongoDB, so basically fast API, PyDantic, Beanie, and MongoDB course. That is going to be a four-day, six-day course over two weeks, and it has you know, a couple hours a day. And oh wow, you would have a bunch of people there working together on some fun stuff, and I'll be live teaching every session so it's going to be like a live course as if you were attending it in person just remotely because it's 2022 and it's not uh i guess it's not um uh, post post COVID all the way but anyway it's it's got a really cool set of topics that we cover it talks about async it talks about mongo beanie pydantic fast api of course we even use locus at the end to test it out I,
0: i'm i think this would be fun this looks great cool yeah
1: yeah awesome Nice I, I think it'll be fun too. I think it'll be neat to have this experience with people. And I've tried this before, but all my prior attempts were, they were good, I think, but they were like, oh, yeah, take the online course and then we'll do like a community type thing. This is like a live course that I'm just teaching one off for that group of people that sign up. So yeah. we'll see how that goes. If it goes really well and people love it, then I'll do more of these. If not, then maybe less of them. I don't know. We'll see how it goes, but this is uh, happening August 8th to 19th. So it, it has a okay. real date because it has, you know, a real live aspect to it. Nice. Cool. All right, cool. uh, and uh, Mar- Mario on the audience says, "That's my stack right there." Oh yeah, that's a good stack right there. It's, there's some really <laughs> good stuff um, to, to talk about there. I'm, I've been using Beanie and, and Fast API for stuff, and obviously Mongo.
0: Yeah. Uh, speaking of courses, uh, one right. one question out there: uh, How's the Pytest course going? It is going. It's 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 creeping forward, but it's life has gotten in the way, um, and uh, we'll yeah, get no, it out. No, that's awesome that you're having. Um, yeah. It's awesome that you work on that. It
1: takes a while to create a course, doesn't it?
0: Longer than I thought. I'm like, man, I already wrote the book. I can totally pop a course out in like a couple of days. Yeah. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> Would you say that like as a
1: junior developer, you might uh, think about this differently than after somebody has been doing it for a while?
0: <laughs> yeah. I just, this cracked me up. So, um, I can't remember. It's a great this joke you got here on, uh, somebody shared it on Twitter. Sorry. I can't, I, I don't know who, but, um, OK, so in a job interview, you've got uh, somebody gets asked, uh, where do you see yourself in five years? And the junior developer in this interview question like <laughs> shows a picture of like uh, you know the black hoodie with multiple screens and light up keyboard. Just yeah, ha- like I'm in like hacker. Five zone. screens. Yeah, just yeah. Totally coding. Yeah. Senior developer, where do you see yourself in five years? On a farm. <laughs> Pumpkin farming with cows and apples. And you know what? I'm.
1: I'm about done <laughs> i
0: love it <laughs> yeah i my my personal thoughts are why not both this is just a view of in, in the inside is office and then outside yeah, yeah. working from yeah. home man that's right working from home yeah all right i have uh maybe
1: the one that preceded that the one that or maybe is in between these two that might precipitate the second right? okay all right so this is a tweet um from programming humor it's a strange language that js JavaScript is such a strange language. Nobody can understand it. But if they manage to, then they create their own framework. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> Everyone's got their JavaScript front-end framework or something like that.
0: Yeah. Anyway. And y- you know you've yep. made it when the framework you've invented starts showing up on job requirements. That's right. Yeah. With with four years uh, experience, when <laughs> yeah, it's only two years old. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Uh, well, good episode, Michael. Thanks for uh, showing up yeah. again. You bet. Fun as always. Thanks, everybody. Uh, See you later. In the slack and everything. Bye. Later.